Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Without further ado, welcome to Ranger Strength Podcast. I'm Lucas Aaron, as always, and with me today I have a very special guest, Alexis Laviel. Laviel. <laughs> I'm not francophone. I'm I'm very uh, Eastern Canadian. Uh, Alexis, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today and be on the podcast. I really appreciate it, especially while you're on vacation. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> awesome. Uh, it's been uh, great the last month or so connecting with you and, and getting into your content and uh, seeing what you're all about and, and information that you put out and. Uh, Great for me as a coach and as someone, you know, looking for that kind of information to bring to my own practice and help people with, but also cool to just kind of see someone uh, kind of becoming a vigilante of the social media. And this <laughs> uh, uh, the most boring kind of vigilante, <laughs> but, you know, uh, working hard to, you know, dispel the misinformation that's it's thrown around out there, which is uh, not an easy job for sure. And it's I, great seeing you lift, man. Proving that um, you can be strong and flexible. That's because I hate that myth. So you're doing, you're working on it too. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's kind of a, a similar approach from coach's perspective. Um, so you're a physio in Canada. Yeah, Montreal. Montreal, cool. How long have you been doing that for? Uh, six years, I think. I'm not sure. Like I finished with my master's in 2015, I think, uh, and then I've been self-employed for like the last five years. Um, we're going to get into some talk today around shoulder impingement, which is, I think is going to be great. Like even for myself, um, and talking to other coaches, it really seems to be, uh, an area or topic that doesn't have a lot of clarity these days as, yeah. as other things that, that we've presented on this podcast. But, um, before we get into that, um, it's always good for me to just kind of hear from the guests and for the listeners to kind of just you know, hear about how you got into this field of work and how that kind of all began? Um, I got into physical therapy because um, I was like just below the threshold to get into medicine, like by a point. Um, so I went to, into physio because it was related and I've always been doing sports. So I was like, you know, I'll probably like this. Um, and then I didn't like it at first. So then I went to law school and then I went back to physical therapy um just because I, I i saw the people in law school and i thought they were really cool and law was interesting but i felt like no one wanted to help people which in physio is the opposite it's like people are too nice i think so i was like i'll just be uh like go to physio and help people while being a dick you know just merge the two together <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah i didn't like it at first but then i met uh, a mentor called um david stringer and he just showed me like like most of the things i didn't like about physio like stuff that i was like that kind of doesn't make sense he was like yeah you're probably right uh, and then he showed me study and studies and then i just just got the ball rolling and i've been skeptical ever since uh so yeah that's how i use science now it's just because i've been lied to before and i'm using because i don't think they were actually lying it wasn't like a big conspiracy i just think they were maybe a little bit behind on the science which can happen for 
a host of reason, uh, reasons in at universities. And I think maybe that's one of the things too, is when you get into a field of work, maybe it's any field really is you kind of get comfortable. And if you're really truly passionate about it, you kind of should be actively seeking the most current available information and up-to-date research or approaches to it, which is something I respect as a coach, like just always trying to evaluate what's the next best thing and will that help my client or is it, you know, a good approach. Um, so that, yeah, that's cool to hear, man. It's cool to hear how that kind of looking out and maybe not liking physio at first, but then seeing where you fit in the physio world kind of, yeah, I can see that with your account, no bullshit physio. <laughs> yeah. It makes it more fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, so after connecting with you, um, on my social media, like I do get a lot of criticism with some of the crazy stuff I'm doing, but, um, someone had reached out and commented on a movement I was doing and, and saying, you're going to mess up your shoulder. That's bad for your shoulder. I was in an internally rotated position doing a tricep isolated exercise and protractions, what I was like highlighting as well. And then they referred me to another post where another subject matter expert, I guess you could say, is uh, highlighting that an empty can exercise would cause impingement. They were basically like, you know, look at this post and you're going to hurt your shoulder. And I was like, okay. Was it squat you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, yeah. Yeah, so kind of ridiculous because two of the exercises were completely different exercises but again it highlights the fact that when you present something like that and say like do not do this exercise it's so bad for you that people kind of go crazy with it right and you start seeing positions and just saying like you can't do that but uh, that whole thing had me scanning through the post and of course found you there and you're you know fending off this misinformation with you know further context to what's current and that's when we got to talk and I reached out about you know, coming on and talking more further about shoulder impingement theory. And um, yeah, I think that's a good place to start there is like, like in your opinion and with everything you've been, uh, you know, studying and get into, like, how did this get to where it is now? Where it's, you know, a little batshit crazy, almost kind of reminds me of like spinal flexion. <laughs> it's very similar. It's the spinal flexion of the shoulder. Yeah. Um, I think the most interesting way to go about it is to look at the history of how impingement became the kind of dominant uh, theory uh, for the first few years. Um, so I think it was in 1979, Robert Neer, who's an orthopedic surgeon, um, his theory was that if you have a certain type of shoulder that's impinging, impinging means like basically squeezing the rotator cuff tendon, uh, that's what leads to pain with elevation of the shoulder. Um, what we usually call like rotator cuff related shoulder pain or rotator cuff tendinopathy now. And he further expanded and said that if uh, you do a bunch of these movements, like with internal rotation, where he said that, that that's when the impingement happened, it could also lead to rotator cuff tears in practice. It makes total sense. Like if you consider the human body to be a car, if it were a car, it would probably happen that way. Problem is that he didn't account for the fact that, you know, the body is adaptable and also the reason why it got the ball rolling is because he started doing what's called like an acromioplasty, which is, or what we call like a subacromial decompression. So that's when you kind of take out a piece of the acromion. So the impingement itself is kind of impossible. Then it it just can't happen because the structure that impinges the tendon just doesn't exist anymore. And he saw that people were getting better. The problem is that when we did RCTs in like more recent years and like really high quality ones where we do like a sham surgery. Uh, so beer did one in 2018 and then Pavlova did one in 2018 as well. And they both found the same thing 
is that if you just do a placebo surgery, so basically you just make the hole and you tell the patient, Hey, I, we removed their chromium. The results are exactly the same in both groups, as long as they both do physio. And actually they compared the surgery to not even doing the treatment. So just basically telling people, Hey, just wait it out. <laughs> and the outcomes were the same. So it's pretty important because the, I think it's one of the most routinely, um, perform surgeries. And we had earlier uh, data that showed that it probably didn't work and then impingement didn't happen, but the subacromial decompression still skyrocketed in the USA. So it's pretty disappointing because it was like the data was there and then doctors were almost like, you know, that meme where it's like, I'm going to do even worse, <laughs> like uh, with uh, like Michael Scott, it's kind of what the orthopedic doctors did. And, like they proved that it didn't work and it just did more, which I mean, it could be worse because it's not that risky of a surgery, but there's always a risk with surgery. Um, but yeah, it's whatever. So that's kind of how the myth got started. But then we have new data that shows that it might not have even happened that way physiologically in live humans. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, pretty important information to kind of get to now to think like, do we need surgical intervention? You know, for someone who is getting the same effects as another individual who doesn't have uh, the surgery or is like you know, given the placebo effect. Um, so from that kind of perspective, assessing impingement, like understanding impingement, like, so even maybe referencing back to this exercise that we're talking about, because this is something that as a coach myself, like, you know, you go, you take your certain certs. And of course I was part of the FMS era, <laughs> you know, it's like, I it to you, yeah. <laughs> help all the coaches become better coaches. And it was like, you know, we're assessing impingement with like, and across and lifting the elbow and then you have empty can movements. So what has like a lot of this newer, uh, newer findings and research kind of done for us in terms of like trying to assess that better or better understand it in that lens. Um, so my understand understanding has actually like evolved recently. So I was still using the, uh, what do you call it? The, like the Hawkins Kennedy test and all that stuff. I still use it in practice, but it's more about guiding what exercise I'm going to use. So like, let's say I want to do Cuban presses, right? I, I sometimes use that as a late stage uh, treatment for rotator cuff tendinopathy. I'm not checking like, oh, does that person have like subacromial impingement syndrome? I'm more like, hey, does this move and hurt? Is that like a pain trigger? And when am I going to integrate it? When I practice it, does it get worse or not? Because um, if you look at um, the correlation between actual impingement or rotator cuff uh, problems and the Aukin Kennedy and the near test, there's like, they're basically not good. So for a test to be considered reliable you need to you need it to be about 90 percent for those they're like below 50 percent. so it's like a coin toss as to whether they're useful or not and i would say they're not if you use them that way as like special tests but they're more like a provocative test that is what i call them um there's also like a study by gippard in two, 2012 which shows that beyond 70 degrees of elevation the there's it's basically basically the superspin is is out of the footprint of the the subacromial arch so basically it's physi physiologically impossible for there to be an impingement beyond that angle where we usually test it at, right? You usually test at 90 degrees, but you'll know as, as well as me that when you treat a patient that has like a uh, subacromial pain, um, that's usually the angle that's the most painful. So the way I assess it is, you know, when I used to play basketball, we used to do that drill where we keep the arms on the side, right? Just like as an, an isometric. And that's pretty hard, right? It's just the angle where there's the biggest lever on your arm. So it's harder. So it's, it would be like, you know, if you, if you have knee pain, it'll hurt more if you have a bigger load on your back. Right. It's, it's not because that angle is specifically like hurtful. 
Uh, it's again, it's probably more about leverage. I'm pretty sure if we tested it in a different angle. So if you go sideline, I've tested that with patients. If you go sideline, you can bring the shoulder to 90 degrees, no problem, because you have no load on the shoulder, right? Um, so yeah, it just kind of shifts the way, like you can still use the tests and I still do. It's just, I use them for different reasons. And, um, yeah. And again, if you look at studies on like people, the Lord, like Rebecca Lawrence, the two studies in 2017 and 2019, where she took like a host of like people that had, um, shoulder pain and those who didn't. And then she looked for impingement and like 45% of people had it. Um, and when I say that, when I mean impingement, it's like direct contact with the rotator cuff tendon. Um, but it didn't really correspond with like symptoms. Uh, so it's just, it's just a thing like an anatomical variation and not something we should be that worried about. Yeah. Uh, what do we have about this? Some notes about it. Uh, oh yeah. And one of the things we usually do to correct the impingement is we, you know, you try to cue upward rotation of those cap. Um, in those studies the, that she did in 2019, she compared the people with like a lot of upper upwards rotation of the scapula and people who had very little, and there was no change in the uh, acromiohumeral distance. So basically the amount of space that would be compressing the tendon. So basically, even if we try to change the, um, how the shrill is moving, it's not even affecting the, the impingement. It's probably just something that's like a biological variation. The same way some people are wide, some people are narrow, but it doesn't seem to have a significant impact. Yeah, and that was one of the things you'd sent me some notes on too, with in terms of like, uh, kind of like being born with it, or you know, like what does it matter, right? Like, yeah. you know, like what's kind of the difference there, and like how we would intervene and assess and help someone. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff that matters at that level. Um, I mean, I was looking at it recently, like the critical shoulder angle does seem to make a difference. Uh, that's, um, it's kind of complicated to interpret, but it's basically the, how your shoulder sits in relation to your, um, shoulder socket. Um, and that's, does seem to have an impact, but it's more about, um, if you're good, because like everyone's going to develop problems with age. When I say problems, like, it doesn't mean it's going to be painful, but you're gonna have something on imaging, right? Uh, if it's wider, you're more likely to have rotator cuff tears. If it's narrow, that angle, if it's more narrow, you're more likely to get, um, uh, osteoarthritis of the shoulder. So it's more, it's not necessarily that it's worse. It's more that it's going to increase. It's going to gear the risks one way or the other. And for most uh, structural changes, that's the same. So if you look at knee, uh, knee alignment, it's pretty much the same. So it doesn't actually increase the, the rate of OA. So osteoarthritis, it just, uh, impacts which side you're going to get it on. So on the medial surface or the lateral surface, cause that's the one that gets loaded the most. Um, but in total, um, I mean, I did a review recently. It, it only impacts you if it's, uh, if you're like obese <laughs> for the knees actually. So it's usually like, it, it's like not an inerrant value. It's more, if it's compounded by other factors, which obesity is a pretty strong predictor of lifelong problems, uh, then maybe it has a small impact, but it's, it's very small. Again, it's very, very small. It's always whatever I tell people, uh, whenever I talk about this, I'm like smoking is a way bigger impact on it. Like, and not being active is way more important. Um, like smoking on average doubles the risks of everything. Like, uh, like the odds ratio are usually like 2.0 or more for like pain. It's like 227% more chances of having pain in general. So it's like, uh, I feel like people are like worrying about impingement or like knee alignment or just ping, picking at the wrong fruit. Like, I mean, I know it's hard to, 
like make someone stop smoking, but it's pretty much easier than changing the alignment of the knees because we can't change that, you know? Yeah. So like people kind of find this out, like, okay, I have impingement, like it's confirmed. I'm scared. Like what kind of manual therapy is going to help or exercise treatment is going to be kind of best practice for this individual. Like now they're basically feeling like I can't do anything. And this is where, I mean, I kind of, as a coach, I end up dealing with a lot of those people that they go and they get some clinical treatment and then they start looking for a coach that can help them rid of this pain that's still not gone or you know, have this kind of intervention. What's like for that person, are, are we going to change them with manual therapy? Are we going to change them with exercise intervention? Like what's going to be kind of the best practice? Um, I mean, the simplest way for ways for coach coaches to integrate that, um, and honestly, I'd probably do that. And you probably do that too, is you just basically steer clear of like the 90 degrees for a little bit. And then you work your way up. So like the end goal would be um, like an overhead press and eventually maybe even a Cuban press, but it's not necessary for everyone. Cause it's not the most, it's not the best movement. Except maybe it's like a warm up, uh, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I think everyone was like terrible shoulder point, shoulder pain probably has like a movement you can do with the shoulder. Usually it's like a bicep curl if it's very, very, very acute. Otherwise, if they can't do anything, it's probably not an impingement. In my experience, it's probably more like a frozen shoulder or something that needs to be checked out. Um, but yeah, th- again, it's just finding the starting point because the rotator cuff, if your shoulder's moving, the rotator cuff is activating. Maybe not as much because the maximal activation is at 90 degrees, which is probably why it's more painful doing these when you have subacromial pain. Um, but yeah, so usually sticking to lower ranges is usually a good starting point and that can bring on some analgesia. So people get less sensitive and then you move up to more functional movements. And then usually what I do is, you know, I start with like Arnold presses because they're usually less painful. And then I gradually move back to like modified Arnolds and, or then shoulder presses, um, you know, moving them back to that, uh, elevation, like a abduction movement. And it depends on the patient. There's some patients who like, they can do abduction fine, but they can't do front raises. You know, so it just depends. You find the trigger and you try to load it in a way that's tolerable. And um, yeah, that's it. You just find a way that's tolerable um, for it. One, one of the things you're kind of looking for too, like uh, I'm sure you can agree with some of the pain science kind of discussion, which hopefully we can get a little deeper into that, is like you're kind of looking for a mindset change too. You know, getting them comfortable and actually using and moving the shoulder. And you see that, change and mentality and confidence and all of a sudden they feel they can more confidently move into this position they weren't at before yeah that's probably the hardest part um i my, the way i do it usually is i tell them like every decade that you're alive there's a similar likelihood that you're gonna have a tear so like if you're 40 there's like a 40 percent chance I mean, it's not exactly this, but it just goes up as you age, but it doesn't seem to be very symptomatic in most patients. So like a two thirds of rotator cuff tears are asymptomatic. So you usually start with that. They're like, do you have a tear? I'm like, I don't know. And it probably doesn't matter because, um, you know, rotator cuff is a group of muscles that work together. So if one's kind of busted a little bit, it doesn't really matter. Um, I used the analogy that Adam Meekins came up with the, I think he came up with it, but the holes in the blanket, are you familiar with that? No. So sometimes I'll literally pull the blankets because we have blankets to the clinic and I'll be like, you know, some, when people think about a a tear, they think that you're just ripping the blanket in half, right? A tear of the rotator cuff, since it's it's like, like a group of tendons is 
it's more like if you poke a hole in the, in the blanket with this, with the pen, right? If you pull in the blanket, it's still going to work mechanically. It's just, there's a small hole in it. So if you have a major tear, yes, it's going to affect it. You're going to pull in the blanket and it's going to go haphazard, but if you just has a, a small hole, it doesn't affect function. And that's why there's so many people, like 66% of people who have tears and have, they have no idea. Like I've had a guy with like a complete tear on imaging and he was doing overhead pushups against the wall. And I, I was like, I still want surgery. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like you don't need one. <laughs> um, so some people, it's really hard to change their minds, but most people would be like, yeah, you know what? And then the, the second part of that, cause you can tell someone anything it's if you prove it to them and you just show like, Hey, you can do these things. Like if you get them to, let's say do a push up, you can just say like, Hey, you can do this if you had a tear or but no, that's actually like not honest. Like, except if someone's really, really fearful, I won't use that, but I'll say like, it's probably not, not something that requires surgery if you're able to do this. And then, you know, we just move on and they get less sensitive Kind of like a proof is in the pudding approach, I'd say. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it almost feels like there's like a 50-50 with the people that want the surgery right away just to get it over with and rip off the Band-Aid and, and those that are like trying everything they can to not have that surgical intervention and try to move on and find other things for them to do. So yeah. in terms of like, like actually having the surgery, like how, what are the outcomes and like the best kind of, you know, in terms of like statistics, everything being something to totally steer away from or, you know, what's the perspective? Uh, no. So usually what I tell people is like surgery spine is just, it's not a first line approach. Um, so you got, um, if you look at the long-term outcomes, usually if you do get the surgery, there's for most cases, there's a slightly higher risk of osteoarthritis. And obviously from the anesthesia, there's a risk of just dying. You're not going to die from exercise and it's extremely rare. They, <laughs> and you can't, but you'd have to train really hard. Um, but uh, from surgery, there's a small risk that that happens. Like, but patients are aware of that usually when they get the surgery. Uh, but long-term, again, it does make a small difference. Like you're more likely to have a second surgery. You're more likely to have um, osteoarthritis, which you know increases your risk of having pain compared to not getting the surgery. Um it depends. Like there's surgeries where, where surgery is going to help reduce the risk of osteoarthritis. So like recurrent knee instability and recurrent shoulder instability, um, there is like evidence that it's going to uh, get lower. It is. There's not a study where they actually directly compared that. It's just me from looking at all the studies together. We can infer it, but it was never been tested directly. Um, but these patients don't usually respond well to physical therapy anyways. So when I say it's like a gross instability, shit like pops in and out, then I'm like, yeah, we're, you definitely need a consult with a surgeon. Uh, if there's none, or if it's just once it happened once it's a freak accident, I'm like, let's just try physio first and then see if you still need it. And in any ways, if you look at the data, people who get physio usually do a little bit better if they get physio first, right? If you get a delayed surgery, probably because they're more ready the they're stronger after getting the surgery or something like that you know yeah. um so yeah i'm not completely against surgery i just think it's not a first line um thing and i have like not everyone gets better with physio that's true and then maybe these patients are going to respond to to surgery it's just again you can't know without trying and the least risky uh, option is um it's physio, but it's not viable everywhere. So if you look at like different systems, like America and Canada have a vastly different system. So there are some cases where patients just don't have the money to do physio, depending on what their insurance is. And then there's some people who don't have the money to make the, to do the surgery. So it's, you have to take that into account. I think that's just a big discussion that I like to kind of peer through the, 
consultation. I'm not going to talk about this day one. I just don't want to worry the patient. But then if we have crossed that bridge, I'll just give them information. I'll always emphasize that it's their choice. And like, if they get the surgery and they want to come back after, I'm not going to be mad. It's just, I want them to have informed consent. Cause I always think it's always about informed consent. Um, you know? So I think it might've been your page or one of the other pages directed me to that had shared some of the recent statistics and that have changed with impingement surgeries like it's still i think pretty much the same in north america but it seems like united kingdom and areas like that like it's really the percentage of surgeries that are have have been happening have gone down and this yeah. is obviously because there's maybe a more modernized approach there and they're realizing like you know surgery isn't the first line of defense here and, and there's other interventions we can use and like do you think that's something that will change like through North America, hopefully, or like, like how far behind do you think we are in, in like bringing this forward and having, you know, seeing that change? I think in Canada, it's not that bad. I really think it's the USA driving it down. And it's just that, you know, the, if you look at how it's going to go uh, as a system, like uh, as a whole, like across millions of people, it usually goes on the way that's the most lucrative for the person on top, right? So doctors make more money money if they, they make more surgery. So it's not that they're doing it with ill intentions. It's just at the end of the day, if you, you have to go one way or the other and one pays you like like millions of dollars, you're probably overall, there's going to be a trend towards the millions of dollars. You know what I mean? Because um, uh, I heard that like what the thing that doctors hate is seeing someone that they're not going to operate on. Cause that's kind of like time wasted for them. So usually what um, a suggestion that's been done is getting chiros and physios to triage for the doctors. So that everyone that goes to see the orthopedic surgeon is actually a surgery candidate. I think that's a good way to do it uh, in terms of like how it's working. I think in Canada, it's probably not as bad because um, I mean, there's a big backlog, right? For surgeries, it's really long just cause it's, it's a public health system. So that's one of the drawbacks of having a public health system and but the good thing is, well, it's kind of weird, but the doctors do have a long wait list. So they're not like they're, they're least, they're less likely to do surgery because they can't upcharge. You can't do anything else. Whereas in the States, they can just upcharge or have like a very, just do a lot, a lot, a lot of surgeries. Um, in Canada, it's a bit harder. It's not actually, it's, it's not as lucrative to do the wrong thing to opt to make, to do useless surgery. So I think we're not that bad in Canada. I think it's worse in the USA. And most of the data I've seen on the increases are mostly located in the USA. So yeah. Uh, you shared a few papers with me and I didn't get to all of them, but uh, okay. one that I was looking at before we met here today was the uh, shoulder capsule elastic modulus one. Yeah. So, pro- the main thing I've gotten from it is like posterior capsules shows much greater strength um, and the superior capsule showed the least amount of strength. And, you know, like where, why would that be an important uh, research kind of for us to think about with regards to shoulder impingement and just rotator cuff health in general. Yeah. Um, it's mostly useful in terms of manual therapy because it's not the relative difference between the two. That's, that's more uh, relevant in terms of like dislocations and stuff like that. But in terms of um, like, cause there's way more dislocations with an anterior dislocation than posterior, right? You need like a car crash or like a heavy push to get a posterior dislocation. Whereas anterior dislocation, I've had people dislocated just, like picking up something if they had something going on. Um, the reason I, I, I sent you this study is because if you look at manual therapy, uh, the way I was taught it, and they still teach it that way, is like, you know, if someone has a impingement, you need to push the shoulder down so that the person's uh, humerus is sliding 
is in less contact with the their chromium, right? So you get less impingement. The the Itoy study from 1993 you're referring to, they showed that. I mean, if you do the calculation, it takes about 180 pounds to 450 pounds, depending on which direction you're pushing to modify the, the capsule. So what that means is we're, it's probably not how manual therapy is working. We're not like if you push in a direction and there is some studies that show that like it doesn't matter the different the direction you're pushing for it to provide pain relief because it does provide pain relief. It's just a short term because you're not doing anything structural. You know what I mean? So. It's not that manual therapy doesn't work. It just doesn't work the way people, uh, well, the way it's taught traditionally. And that has an impact because it's not going to create long lasting outcomes. So that's, if people just get manual therapy at the clinic and have been getting it for weeks and they're like, it's just not sticking. It's it's because, yes, because you can't modify the shoulder. It's way too solid. And that's a good thing. Otherwise it would be constantly dislocating. Um, So yeah, the two main drawbacks from this is I tell physios that they don't need to push that hard on the shoulder, especially if it's sensitive, it's probably not going to feel great. And since it does provide pain relief without changing the structure, it's probably more a neurophysiological effect. So basically you push on it and it doesn't hurt as much. The a simple way to explain it is that, um, well, besides the contextual effect of someone taking care of you and that just feels good, mm-hmm. the same way that just talking to someone can drastically reduce their pain um, is like, you know, if when you hurt your head and you just rub it. Yeah. it's a form of sensory bombardment, right? You're just giving another feedback to the nerve and the body's just, I was like, Oh, maybe that signal of pain is not as relevant now. So um, you could call it like tricking the nervous system. That's the way. I, and another way to phrase it would be the way I explain it to patients is just, I'm giving you a tolerable amount, a tolerable amount of stimulus. Uh, that way your body can take on more. So moving the shoulder is not going to hurt as much. Um, and yeah, there's, there's some studies like the wheelie, the study in 29, uh, 2009, where he basically put his hand on the knee and compared to actual manual therapy and the outcomes were the same in terms of pain, function, walk test. It was like exactly the same. The only difference was that, the um, manual therapy group at a lower pain pressure threshold, right? So what that means is it's probably just from the fact from pressing you're desensitizing. Cause it's like, Hey, it's pressing on me and nothing's happening. So me as a nervous system, I probably don't need to send as many pain signals. I can desensitize myself kind of like, it's probably similar to how sometimes when I work out, I have pain. I just, I just warm up and I'm fine. Cause my body's like, Hey, it, the shoulder's actually fine. It's more like a, you know, you're decreasing the protective mechanism. No, that's a, no, that's a cool perspective because I mean, that's always one of the things you're trying to basically do is, I mean, I'm sure as a physio and as a PT or personal trainer coach is like, basically counseling people to move more. It's, like, it's okay to be sore. And <laughs> if you move through your soreness, it's going to get better. Right. And it's like, exactly. Yeah. You know, get to that point where someone has that. And I mean, I have it too, right? Like we're not really this concept of pain freedom is move, whatever is kind of funny because there's always some kind of referred pain from life. And <laughs> so it's like people are, are often just trapping themselves in this thought of like, I can't do anything until I feel completely numb. <laughs> yeah. That's just not how life works. So it's kind of like counseling that, which is, you know, maybe a cool segue into some of the pain science and, you know, work that you do. I know that's like a big part of uh, the, your other project, or maybe just your practice in general, the, is it pragmatic? Rehab principles. Yeah. Principles. Is that yeah, pragmatic rehab principles? Yeah, is that focused like on pain science? Uh, it's more about like, well, it is my 
the posts I've made for the group is mostly about pain science, but that's just, it's one of the things that we want to integrate in the program. Um, it's basically teaching how to integrate uh, exercise, like therapeutic exercise um, to people who haven't really been taught it in an evidence-based way. So like a lot of physios for, for me, like we got exercise classes, but not as much as I think as we should have gotten. Um, and same thing for chiros. I think they get like one course depending on the program and a lot of them don't get it. So we ran a, a survey and a lot of them don't actually get courses. Whereas if you look at any uh, other like best practice guidelines, there's going to be exercise in there. It's just, we haven't even done it. And they, they get like 70 classes of manual therapy and, you know, like 200 ways to manipulate people. And like, that's, that's fine. You, there's some effects of um, spinal adjustments and all that stuff. It's just, it's, it's not an all clinical best practice yet they get so many classes and they don't get a single one for exercise in some cases. So we thought that it would be important to have someone that can kind of fill up the gap. So that's what we're trying to do. And just pain science fits into it. Cause eventually we want to get into how exercise actually works because the mechanisms, even the things I thought before, and I used to tell the patients are not, it just doesn't work that way. Actually, it works completely differently. So it's important because if you know how it works, you can, um, basically make exercise more efficient by optimizing that thing. Just like the way if you're like, you know, people don't get scurvy when they, they eat oranges. Like we know it's for vitamin C, right? So you can just get vitamin C capsules um, or like we put vitamin D in milk in Canada, right? Cause the sun is not there uh, long enough. It's just finding that what the vitamin C or vitamin D of exercises is, is really useful. That's kind of what my interest is for, for the group. The others are going to teach people how to use like machines to train and, like the principles of exercise in general for lifelong health and stuff like that. Actually not even that different on the uh, exercise science or kinesiology kind of side either. You don't really get as many, uh, as much training and like exercise and programming and stuff as you'd like. So, I mean, it's pretty common. You see uh, students graduate and then they're like trying to get as much practical experience because you come out with all this, like, you know, uh, educational based course learning. And then it's like, I don't know how to make a program. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that happens. I think maybe like PhDs get, um, they get money and traction from studying one thing. And then they're kind of stuck doing it the same way. Some actors get typecast. I think you could get typecast for research. Um, and that becomes unfortunate. Like I had a really good teacher at my school, but like when I say good, it's just like, she was good at teaching what she was teaching, but the, it was like mostly ultrasound stuff. And, like electromodalities, which to me, I don't even use it because I don't think it's that useful. Um, and she did the research well. It's just the implications of her research is that it's really not all that useful. But then again, it's like, what are we going to do, fire her? Or she's going to teach something she's never studied? You know what I mean? There's kind of like politics at play. And since uh, our field, like fitness and physio, is evolves quite fast and it's quite new, same thing with fitness science. Like it's much younger than people think. Like exercise being mainstream is like like 150 years old, not even. Like running used to be, you used to be weird for running. Um, like there's a guy who has my name in Quebec, like Alexis Tratar, who was like famous just because he would run marathons for fun. He would run after trains. And that was like weird at, at the times because no one was running. Right. So it's normal that the science is quite new because exercise as a trend is quite new as well. Um, so I think it's going to get better with time as we have like a more solid grasp on what works or whatnot. Because like, if you look at medicine, it's been shit for 2000 years. And then just recently, it's really good. But we used to like bleed people and like give them uh, yogurt in the, in the butt. 
uh, as a treatment. So <laughs> we've gone a long way and I think we still have a long way to go in physio and yeah. exercise. Same thing. I think we're getting over that hump of like, see, well, like, I mean, obviously your, your physical fitness practice should be safe, but we're getting over that, like, you know, bubble wrapping kind of era, which I was a part of, like, as a new coach, you know, that era of like, we're only going to lift with neutral spine. We're only going to lift with knees aligned with toes and um, the body can't twist or bend or move. And I was kind of, I always say I was lucky to have had gotten into powerlifting around the same time because it was, <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to do that if I brought in those principles. And I think we're getting over that, that hump, like, you know, slowly, but surely we're getting over the spinal flexions bad kind of uh, era, I think. And, you know, shoulder impingement is, it's another one. Like a lot of people are also being, I'm sure maybe you've experienced this misdiagnosed or just kind of like, because it becomes so common, it's like, Oh, you have shoulder impingement or people are diagnosing themselves based off of thing they see. And it's like, everyone's yeah. you talk to someone like, I have an impinged shoulder. It's like, well, do you, do you actually? Have yeah. Like, okay. A lot of people do. It's normal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the easiest way I phrase it with patients when they worry about the impingement is that it's like, Hey, impingement's kind of normal. It's, it's kind of like having, if when you do a deep squat, you're going to get compressive stress at your knee, but mm -hmm. are you going to call it? compression at the knee syndrome right no you're gonna call it knee pain but for shoulders for some reason we're like oh no there's compression it's, it's bad it's like not really and um if you look at the work by yamamoto the study in 2016 um and he looked at people who had like some tears right and he looked uh it was a prospective study so he looked way further in time to see if the tears had progressed or not and you looked at like risk factors. So we saw that like heavy, heavy laboring or like training, like doing powerlifting and stuff like that was not related to tear progressions or the apparition of new tears. So if you look at, if you put that together with the research by Rebecca Lawrence that I mentioned earlier, where uh, we see like 45 to 50% of people have uh, shoulder impingement, like contact between the acromion and the rotator cuff tendon, you'd see a lot more progression of the tears if impingement was something to worry about in the group that did heavy laboring or uh, like powerlifting or weightlifting, right? Because you'd be constantly compressing it with high loads, but there was no difference between the two groups. So the implication is that either it's not a big thing or with appropriate rest, your tendon does adapt. And uh, Baudier in 2021, like did a study and she showed that your dominant leg is like thicker tendons. So there's some biological plausibility to it. And there's other papers showing that tendons do adapt, not as much as muscles, like not at all they do adapt. So my bias and the way I usually explain is that if you had to take a guess at the literature right now is that tendons do maintain homeostasis. Like the, as you get older, some of it is going to tear in the shoulder and stuff, but it's not much to worry about it, ex except if it's major. Um, and exercise is not going to exacerbate, uh, make it worse. Uh, it's probably going to make it better in my opinion, because if you look at stuff like uh, metabolic factors, like smoking or obesity, these are actual factors for uh, tear progression. So the, um, the Yamamoto study actually showed that like, whereas again, the exercising wasn't a risk factor for tear progression, um, smoking was. So I think it was like an odds ratio of two again. So you were twice as likely to get your tears to progress if you were a smoker or get a new tear. Um, so again, the, the tears that are called like degenerative seem usually linked to more uh, systemic factors like diabetes, obesity, 
more like lifestyle things. So again, not exercising because you're afraid of a, afraid of tearing something is probably counterproductive if we're talking about tendons um, and other things too. You probably could be doing. Um, if, if there were like, I guess, a, a couple of components to like pain science that you would want like listeners to maybe just kind of think about or understand or even look more into um, would they be? Um, I mean, there's one I already mentioned that there's a huge disconnect between imaging findings and pain. So like if you take for the back and for the knee, it's pretty much the same. And for the shoulder, it's usually, it usually turns around between 90 to 96. It's usually strangely at like around 96% of people are asymptomatic. So if you just do a study where you just pull people in the clinic and you're like, let's get an MRI for people who have no pain, uh, 96% of people are going to have something there. Uh, Blank and C did a study where uh, he looked at hips of rugby players, ballerinas, and just control, uh, like just random people. And all three groups are 87% of labral tears. <laughs> so it's uh, like of the hips. So it's like everyone's going to have something on imaging. So it's usually in isolation, something on imaging is not something to worry about. And there's a lot more that goes into pain than those changes, right? That's the first one, right? So you're not your imaging and pain is more than tissue damage. Um, the other one is that exercise does seem to have an analgesic effect, um, but that a lot of it is probably nonspecific. So what I mean by that is if you look at just random athletes, um, I don't remember the specific study, but they looked at their pain threshold. So like how much pressure or heat it took for them to be like, how, like, ow, this hurts. And they saw that both for endurance athletes, so like runners or um, like people who do strength training, uh, it was lower for both. Uh, it was higher for both. So it took them more to be in pain. Uh, whereas for, uh, there was a small difference between the endurance people and the weight training people. So the weight training people, um, it took them more to be in pain. Whereas the endurance people, like the runners, long distance runners, they could withstand it for longer. Kind of makes sense if you look at it because marathon, like a marathon, is pain. You're just basically in pain and you keep going, right? For strength training, it's more your ability to withstand loads, like they're extremely heavy, so a high dose for a short period of time. So um, I think that kind of makes sense. But my, my my takeaway usually that's how I frame it for people. It's like if you're more active, maybe the problem's still going to be there, but it's going to your pain threshold is going to be higher, so it's less likely to be coded by your brain as pain. Um, we don't know a good reason, like a very specific reasons. There's like a lot of theories, but the way I explain it to people is, is just like, usually pain is more like a, a safety mechanism, right? Kind of like a, a light indicator in your car. So sometimes it lights up and nothing's broken. It's kind of like that. So if you exercise a lot, your body is going to understand that your body's robust and that you don't need to have those alarm signals, uh, which are usually redundant. So uh, yeah, so being active is probably going to make you like be less in pain and it doesn't have to be specific. So just like even just increasing steps is probably going to have a big effect on pain. So yeah, there's, there's two principles I think are useful for the general public. Did you want something for like coaches? Yeah. Maybe that'd be cool to have like one kind of coaches mindset. Like in terms of, I think a lot of coaches are afraid to deal with people in pain. Like I kind of invite it in my practice a lot. Cause I, I you know, I, yeah. I I've, I'm studying pain science more. I've been getting into Greg's, Greg Lehman's work uh, yeah. more this year, but it's kind of like, you know, I think as you get older as a trainer, you kind of become that guy that's been in the game for a little bit. And people are like, hurt. and I'm like, okay, it's all right. I can help you, you know, but uh, even still it's, I think 
it's good, important for coaches to probably hear like go get some education on pain science and don't be afraid to help people in pain. But like, yeah, if there was one thing you could say to coaches maybe that are listening or thinking about that, or like, cool to hear what it would be. Um, I think it like people should not be like coaches should not be afraid of getting, getting into pain, but I think it's important to know why someone has pain. So I think at least one referral to um, physical therapist or, or a doctor or something or a Cairo, I don't know, like someone that they trust that's qualified and it's not going to like tell the patients that they're their client that they're busted is a good thing. Just, and after that, usually what I do, if someone's fine, I'm like, Hey, you're training, you have a good trainer. I just send them back and I put some little, um, I like tweak the program a little bit. I'm like, Hey, let's lay off this exercise or this exercise for a little bit. Yeah. I think that's better because people are going to be more compliant because the coaches have better relationship. They know their clients and all that stuff. And you guys are much better at motivating, <laughs> motivating people than me, in my opinion. Like I don't go like, ah, let's go in the clinic. You know, it's, it's a much more sterile environment. Um, so it's, it's harder to get the patients to actually do the program. So I think the easiest thing is just to, again, tweak the program. But after that, once you've cleared that, um, the health professional is like clear that it's nothing serious or nothing to worry about. Um, you can like usually load it. So it depends on the joint. Um, what amount of pain is like helpful if we can call it that way. But um, I'd say when in doubt, steering away from pain can be probably as useful if your goal is pain. Um, usually for trainers, that's not the goal. Your goal is to get someone stronger or more endurance and stuff like that. Um, so for those cases, getting going into pain a little bit um, is a good idea, right? If you're a power lifter, you got to prepare for your meat. If you completely avoid the pain, you're probably going to lift nearly as much as if you go into a little bit of pain, which usually seems to be safe. Um, and short-term, like B. Smith did a meta-analysis in 2017, and he did find some small advantages that were clinically unimportant. So basically, it might help a little bit, but it's not like the end-all, be-all. Uh, so a small advantage of going into a little bit of pain, but it has to go away quickly. So the very simplest way that I phrase it is, you know, you can go into a little bit of pain as long as it goes away quickly. And I think you're probably familiar with that symptom, but the most, most, most important thing is if the next day they're in terrible pain, that's, you went too far, you need to scale it back, maybe give like two to three days off or like load some other zone while this, the affected one rests. Um, but yeah, in general, if, if it's, there's like minimal discomfort, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. Again, as long as like red flags have been cleared, um, there's some scales again, but the, the problem with the scales, they've, they've been tested in only certain joints. So like Silver and Eagle's model from, uh, I think, 2015 is a good model, but it's for Achilles tendons. Um, if you look at the, so for those, you can go like in a five out of 10 in terms of pain for an Achilles tendinopathy. You can go pretty hard. But if you go to look at other zones, like for a tennis elbow, uh, lateral epicondylalgia, um, going at that my that amount of pain seems counterproductive. So people are just going to get worse and irritated. So for those, I'm kind of like, you need to back off. So again, it's my advice is you refer to someone that's kind of like keen to that. And you ask them specifically that one question is like, one, is this, <laughs> is this something to worry about? And what amount of pain can I push into? Um, and actually with the pragmatic rehab principles, guys, we are trying to, well, I'm pushing for that. We, I want to go and do a form. That's basically like a collaboration between coach and physio or Cairo, because I think that's really lackluster. So a lot of physios don't know how to program and a lot of coaches are not aware of pain science. So I think you and I probably practice it very, very similarly, but that's not the case for everyone. So I think just a form to standardize it the same way that like a surgeon will give me a protocol to stick to. Like when I get an ACL patient, it's like, you need to reach this, this goal for this, this, this point, and you can't do this, this, this. I think something like that for physios should be kind of standard. And that would help a lot of people apply it 
uh, and would make physios less hesitant to refer. And same thing for the coaches. Cause sometimes I feel like we're in a bit of a competition, which is kind of stupid. Like I'm not here to steal your job. You're not here to steal my job. We're just there to help the patient. So yeah, I'll probably get that ready. <laughs> so I have something to point to, but yeah, I'll send it to you when I'm done. Yeah. And yeah, it's been good to, you know, make contact. Like for me, always looking for those kind of, uh, health practitioners that have the same kind of, uh, vibe I have too, which is like, we're gonna, you know, keep this person moving and keep, you know, really work towards, uh, the mental side of it, as well as like, just keeping them physically active versus, you know, don't do this, don't do that, which is where I really have connected with you. And we've actually talked about with some of my clients, you know, dealing with some of these things and, and, uh, some referrals too. So it's, it always is good to make those kind of connections. That's probably maybe something uh, too, as a coach, if you're looking for a health practitioner, try to find someone who vibes with the way you do things and, you know, will probably help the person the way that you want to help them, uh, yeah. which is a cool thing about social media. You can find those people now more regularly around the world. So, no, that's awesome, man. Uh, I really appreciate you jumping on and sharing all of this uh, information. I know it'll help a lot of people, uh, coaches and just people in general that are kind of probably sitting in there thinking about shoulder impingement and maybe I've talked to a few of them already, but, uh, yeah, man, Possibly, yeah. where can uh, people find, I know we talked about it at the start, but where can they find your stuff? Like, where would you prefer them to be referred to? Um, I'm at no bullshit physio on all platforms, but I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, on Instagram, I also have an educational platform with, uh, Elliot Sierra and, um, Jacob Templar. Uh, which are big strength guys who one is a Cairo and the other is a physio and uh, it's called pragmatic rehab principles. And there we're actually going to deliver courses. We it's purely educational. So my page is a lot of like memes where I make fun of stupid stuff. And then I explain the science as to why it's stupid and why we should do, be doing it different. Uh, pragmatic rehab principles, a more professional, I'd say uh, endeavor where we're basically trying to teach people. So we're going to have courses in person eventually for now. It's mostly just like, posting content uh, and drumming up interest. But um, yeah, I'd say that's a good place, especially if you want coach, uh, courses, because we're we're going to we're gonna have courses for um, Kairos physios, but also coaches. Because again, I think we in MSK care, we should all be practicing pretty much the same way uh, to a point. And I think we need some standardization because the, you can go to one guy and he's going to do black magic and then you go to the other and he's like very, very science-based and then it's really confusing for the client. So I think we need some sort of uh, um, standardization that's i think hopefully we can help a little bit with that yeah for sure i think pain science is the key just from my my side seeing like where coaches need that and i think that's one of the things like we can help a lot is just understanding those things mass matter and like how it, and to understand it and relay the messages is very important yeah so, yeah thanks a lot for jumping on um, my pleasure thanks for having me yeah we'll talk soon with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.